Well, unless you've been hiding under a rock, you probably have heard all about Michael Cassidy, the man who tore down the Satanist statue in the Iowa State Capitol. Due to Cassidy's bold actions, he is now facing serious legal issues. Tonight, we have the blessing to talk with Cassidy's lawyer, Davis Yance, because in God's providence, I just so happen to book him for this week's episode long before the Iowa incident occurred. We'll also talk all about our original topic of a discussion, the state of the American military. We'll discuss the amazing work that Davis is doing to bring about a spiritual revival among an institution that is in the midst of a full-blown pagan takeover. So please stick around. Welcome to Forge and Anvil, where we hammer out uncomfortable conversations about culture, theology, and politics to sharpen ourselves for the race set before us. My name is Connor. I am a husband, a father, and a follower of Christ, and I am host of this podcast, and we appreciate you joining us. And like I said at the top of the episode, I'm joined by Davis Yance. So Davis, uh, go ahead and say hello to the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Hey, thanks, Connor. Great to join you here. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm a Christian, uh, a husband, a father of two amazing girls, a homeschool dad. Um, I'm a military veteran. I retired from the United States Air Force Reserves as a lieutenant colonel. I served 11 years on active duty as a JAG in the Air Force, and I have um, had uh, the opportunity and the privilege of practicing um, law. I started my own firm in 2019. We focus on uh, primarily on representing military members, but we also engage in a lot of uh, religious freedom issues um, and try to engage culture for Christ um, by representing Christians in the legal field. So it's a real blessing to be able to do what I do. Awesome. Well, so glad to have you back, Davis. And before we get started, for those of you joining us, uh, be sure to check out last week's episode. We had an awesome conversation all about storytelling, where Michael and I actually gave some pushback to our guest, um, Faith Moore. She was great. We enjoyed having her. It was a good discussion, but we had some fun uh, back and forth on that. So be sure to check that out. And of course, like and share this video to boost us in the algorithms. Follow us on Twitter at Forge and A for additional content and updates on the show. Share this video on Twitter or X or Twix, whatever you want to call it. And uh, be sure to join us over on YouTube and Rumble if you want to actually be a part of the chat and join in on the discussion. We really appreciate it. It does help us out. So uh, Davis, I want to go ahead and just dive straight in here. So um, obviously our original topic, we're going to talk all about the military and uh, we definitely will, will do that tonight. But uh, everyone's talking about the incident in Iowa. So maybe go ahead and just uh, give our audience... Uh, for those who have been living under a rock this week, uh, give them a little bit of a, a rundown of kind of what initially occurred. Yeah, so for those who, who don't know a lot of background, the uh, the Iowa State Capitol building played host to a display that was erected in honor of Satan, uh, a statue, a display of the the idol Behomet uh, in honor of Satan was put up there by an organization called the Satanic Temple of Iowa. Um, it was, I guess, a limited time display, about two weeks. Um, and uh, it stood there uh, uninterrupted, if you will, until last week when a gentleman uh, walked into the Capitol, the state Capitol there in Iowa, um, saw it. And uh, as he saw it and looked at it, he felt compelled based on his Christian faith to do something about it. So he removed the head, uh, disassembled the statue, um, threw away the head in a trash bag. And once he was done, uh, carefully put the candles back, stacked everything back where it was 
and turned himself into law enforcement there at the Capitol. Mm. And everything proceeds from there. And obviously it's been a firestorm in terms of the attention that's been on it. So um, what was the initial reaction from, so it was, it was the official satanic temple that put up the display. So how did they react to um, hearing the news and what's their initial response to Cassidy? So we have a limited amount of information that we can talk about so far, but what we know so far um, at least our understanding is that the you know local law enforcement asked if they wanted to press charges and they said that they did. And so um, now Michael Cassidy is facing what they call fourth degree um, mischief, criminal mischief in the state of Iowa, which is related to um, the destruction of private property. And uh, so he is facing a misdemeanor charge in Iowa. Mm, okay, gotcha. So Obviously, I, I know you're limited on on everything that you can say because uh, it's just the nature of these things. But um, for as much as you can say, I mean, what what kind of angle do you think that that they're going to initially take? Um, I mean, obviously, First Amendment's been the debate on Twitter uh, surrounding this issue. Um, but do you think that's the angle they're going to take? And if so, what's kind of your uh, your tactic for um, you know what what you would what you would say in response? I guess. Yeah, you know, I don't really start off analyzing this really as a First Amendment issue. I, I really look at this as a distinction between between good and evil, right? So there's there's a lot of things we could talk about just generally in society, what we have accepted as as good or permissible. So, you know, one example that comes to my mind is just like imagine that the Ku Klux Klan was permitted to put up a display in the Iowa State Capitol, honoring the heroes of the Ku Klux Klan. Would anyone wanna stand idly by and allow that to be there, to allow that to be in a place of honor and respect in a state capitol building, an official government building, um, and allow that to persist? And I would hope everyone would join together and say, no, we're, we're not going to allow something like that, a monument to the Ku Klux Klan um, to persist there. Um, and I would say the same analysis can apply here. This is a situation where uh, this is this is evil. This is evil embodied. If we cannot call the worship of Satan, the erecting of an idol to honor Satan um, evil, then I think we have serious fundamental problems in our society. So even even setting aside, you know, deeper First Amendment issues and things like that, we just have a, a critical question of of good versus evil. This is purely embodiment of evil. And I think that's to me, that's where the discussion has to start. And, you know, again, this is early on in the legal process. There's a lot of things that are going to happen that we have to work on. But ultimately, part of me just looks at this as this this week is the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. Right. And the Boston Tea Party involved the careful, targeted, thoughtful um, destruction um, of private property for a political end when other political efforts were exhausted. And I do think there are some similarities here. You have a situation where the elected officials didn't act. They refused to act. They wouldn't act to stop what was evil. And so, um, you know, in a spur of the moment and a decision, Mr. Cassidy engaged in disassembling this and then did it peacefully, cleaned up the garbage after himself, didn't disrupt anything. The legislature was not in session. 
and then turned himself in, submitted himself to law enforcement, and is prepared to face the consequences. So I can't speak to, to legal strategy so far, but I think those are some of the things um, that have been going through my mind of, as I've been praying through this, talking to the legal team and working through this. Um, there's a lot of similarities, I think, to the Boston Tea Party. That's probably a good place to start if we look for a historical analogy. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree with you. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about when it comes to this particular situation is the fact that uh, when you actually look at the uh, the different posts and websites of the Satanic Temple, and I don't know if there's, you know, if the Iowa chapter, you know, whatever the official organization is called, uh, you know, um, I don't know what their individual posts are, but I know when it comes to the sort of global network of Satanic Temples, um, or at least the national, I should say, um, they really, they, they talk as if they are atheists and they aren't actually religious and they're just doing it to sort of make a point and to be heard by specifically, they, they mentioned Christians and just people of faith in general. So it, I also feel like there's an argument that they're probably going to take it from a, a freedom of speech angle. But at the same time, I don't know if there's a legal term for it, but it really seems more like, uh, trying to instigate a response. Uh, from a group that is trying to ultimately uh, sort of harass another another uh, people group. Um, so, I mean, that's that's kind of what has been going through my mind lately. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to unpack there. You know, we could we could start talking in terms of is is the satanic temple a, a religion? Is it a valid religion? Is it something our courts would even recognize? as a religion and therefore should it be protected. So I do think there's some of those conversations that that could be have could be had about this but ultimately I just you know what what bothers me on such a deep just simplistic level is this is a question of good versus evil. Would our founding fathers have been okay with an idol to satan being erected in any state capitol building and I just I think we have to recognize that that that's part of what we're dealing with here this is just simply a question of of good and evil this is evil this is the embodiment of evil this is the epitome of evil so this isn't to me i don't i don't see this um as a as a question of how far we have to restrict the first amendment i think we just we have to recognize that there are there's still morality you know and and all legislation everything has a moral premise to it and so we have to be able to say some things are evil some things are just simply bad and be able to recognize that if we don't if we can't do that we're never going to have a free functioning civil society and certainly not one like we've enjoyed in this country yeah exactly and will uh from renaissance of men he's actually in the chat he said they're not lying they are atheists they don't believe in god they worship the self that is true satanist doctrine yeah exactly <laughs> And you, you talked about uh, the moral premise for laws and how all laws essentially have a moral premise. So obviously uh, something that we've heard so many times in recent years um, is the idea that you can't legislate morality. Can you speak to that? Because I my views have evolved. In fact, if you look at some of the earliest episodes of the podcast, my views have have evolved. And uh, I think I think. Uh, I think they've at least solidified. Um, but uh, go ahead and speak to that for a moment, and uh, we'll just go from there. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, as an attorney, um, you know, as a former military officer, it, it's something I have worked through a lot in my own life, in my own Christian faith. And you know, I would say, you know, uh, maybe ten years ago or so, I, I sort of tended libertarian 
uh, more completely, I would say, in my thought process and even my my philosophy, because it does seem very easy to say. It seems very tempting to say, well, we can't legislate morality, morality so we should just, you know, go into sort of a, a neutral approach to the public square. And the problem is we fall into areas that just don't make sense very, very quickly. And, and we end up ignoring the reality that's either Christ or chaos. So, so what I will say is there is a moral basis for every law. Every law in society, every law in society throughout history does have a moral basis. The question is, what is the basis of, of that morality? What is the standard that we are talking about? Now, I, I wouldn't consider myself a Christian nationalist. I haven't even I haven't even really personally struggled to understand what I think I would mean by that term. But what I will say is this: I, I think that our nation is the best example we've seen in world history where there has been religious freedom. And and why is that? Christianity is is not a a faith. The Bible does not teach forced conversion. Right. And so I think that's that's something people start to think, oh, you know, legislation of morality means you're trying to force people on, you know, your faith on other people. You know, by by virtue of the nature of Orthodox Christian theology, it's it's not a a religion of, of force. It's a religion of of faith and of peaceful conversion and of changing hearts and minds with with truth and love and God's grace and God working in that. So I think that's a really important distinction because if people don't understand that, they can get caught up in this idea um, that somehow force is involved. And I would flip it and I would say that that force, when you look at forcing morality on other people, it actually comes in the modern sense, that kind of force, that kind of morality that we'd be afraid of being forced on people comes from a Darwinian ethic, right? It comes from a Darwinian ethic. It comes from the concepts of communism and socialism, where they seek to, to, to control every facet of, of conscience and to force um, beliefs onto people. That's, that's not where the Christian faith comes from. So as, as we look at these things, you know, I do believe that, that the word of God, that God is our standard, that is the moral standard for everything. That's what we should look to. But frankly, that's what our founding fathers looked to um, you know, I've read I've read um, histories, historical accounts that say, aside from Montesquieu, the most quoted book that was discussed in in the you know informing our constitution wasn't just the Bible, but it was the Book of Deuteronomy from the Bible. So if that's historically accurate. Then then we have to understand there is a there is a pattern, there is an established you know law that is out there that is good. And, and we should be seeking to understand that and how to apply God's moral law to today. And if we do that, then we see the blessings that come from God. So if, as Christians, we shouldn't run from that, right? We should understand that the following Christ is a path to incredible peace and blessing, not just now, but for eternity. So again, I, I think it's important. I think we can have these discussions. And really, I think, you know, my hope with the reason I agreed to, to get involved and represent, um, you know, Michael Cassidy, he's, he's a veteran. Um, that's how, that's how I knew him. That's how he knew to reach out to me, mutual friends. And he's a veteran, but, you know, I, I think we can have these discussions about morality and ethics and our law about just laws and unjust laws. Um, and a lot of it comes down to again, and I don't want to, I don't want to go off on a tangent here too much, but you know, when we say you can't legislate morality, what we're doing is we're buying into a secular myth that says mm -hmm. our Christian faith doesn't have anything to offer in the public square. 
and we end up buying into the myth of neutrality. And that's yep. not loving and kind because we're allowing the world to fall into chaos. And I think so much of what we see in our nation today, what we see in our country today, um, from drags, you know, drag queen story hour to other things is because we've lost that moral compass. We've lost our foundation and footing. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the law is a teacher. That's what scripture tells us. You know, obviously, um, w when it comes to the when it comes to God's law, obviously, the, the whole premise is that uh, uh, mankind could not live up to the standard that God laid out in God's law. But Paul specifically talks about how the law was a teacher until, you know, until something better could come along. Uh, referring to, of course, the new covenant. And ultimately, that that whole line of thinking, the, uh, the law being a teacher, we can see that in today. Now, obviously, we're not trying to bring about heaven on earth. That can't be done. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Uh, but we can try to bring about as moral of a, uh, of a living situation as possible among our fellow men by having moral legislation passed and moral laws upheld. And uh, ultimately, we, we've seen signs of this. We have seen um, for better or worse, we have seen it work in the, the prohibition era. We've seen it work um, when it comes to, uh, I mean, right now, for example, I'm going to use a really modern one. And we did an episode all about uh, the legislation around uh, limiting the use of porn and having age consent laws. Um, mm. And uh, and we've already seen the porn companies uh, cry out that they're going <laughs> to cry out that if you make their customers verify that they are over 18 years old that they are going to lose a large percentage of their consumer base and so what does that tell you immediately <laughs> so right. i mean they, they're all but admitting that they that they market themselves to minors i mean you could you know i'm sure they're trying to make the argument that people just don't want to you know verify in general but uh, i mean tough cookies we know what we know that that's only a portion of that uh, customer base that you will lose and uh, we we actually see these um, a lot of these uh, um, you know they're, they're trying to weasel their way around that legislation as much as possible in these states that are passing these these uh, um, age verification laws but ultimately we see that the porn industry has lost a ton of money from these laws being passed and that's a good thing if we can get our country to be less addicted to pornography as a result of moral laws, that is an absolute win. So I, I definitely think that the law can be a teacher in that. So um, I don't know if you had any uh, any additional thoughts to add on that. Yeah, you know, I, I just think that the biggest thing that I, I keep going back to and, and that I think about constantly is just, you know, everything you just said there and just this idea that blessing comes from from god from god's law from following that from seeking that and and we we have developed a, a sort of christianity a pietism where we're almost afraid to call sin sin and then then and then ignore the consequences of it and that's that's not loving that's not kind that's good and i mean it should just be shocking i mean how, how can we even just sit here and not become I mean, angry, a, a righteous indignation at the concept that the porn industry suffers when we put age verification laws in place. Right. I mean, what does that tell you? I mean, how, how dare they? Right. How dare people make a living in any good and decent society by by turning you know people into sex objects, into objectifying women, into feeding into the the need for 
for human trafficking and putting into that. And that always leads to child trafficking. It always leads to those lines being blurred. Um, that's, that's horrific. And we should be upset about that. We should be fired up about that. We should be able to say, yes, that is wrong. That is evil. You know, and, and that's my whole point about this, this display, um, in the Iowa legislature and, and we could talk, oh, it's not that big of a deal. We can just let it go. We can just pass it by. But again, you know, just imagine the message that sends to school children. School children are walking through the Iowa State Capitol building being exposed to Satan worship. Is that good? Is yeah. that is that beneficial? Is that a, a positive thing to say? And again, we what we allow sometimes is what we hold up as acceptable, right? And that's the point you say, you know, with prohibition or other things, and we could have long debates about should drugs be legalized or, or what drugs should be legalized and what does that look like? But, you know, the reality is we send some of it is, is our children. It is about protecting children and protecting those that are weak. And if we say something is legal or allowed, it does tend to encourage its use. Look at the state of Oregon. I don't know if you've looked at this at all, but one of the things I've seen is, you know, Oregon essentially legalized all hard drugs. Yep. It's essentially blanket drug legalization. I was born in Oregon. I still have family and relatives in Oregon. And what we've seen since they passed that law is that experiment, if you will, is an absolute disaster. So, so here's what they do in Oregon. If you are picked up with in possession of a small amount of an illegal drug, so an amount that would be appropriate with personal use, what they do is they issue you a citation and they say you have a choice. You have a certain number of days, I think it's 60 days, to go and do a voluntary intake, free screening for drug addiction and get support for drug addiction. It's absolutely free. If you don't do that within a set period of time, then you then you will be you'll pay a hundred dollar fine. The percentage of people that have taken advantage of that is minute. It's not even it's less than one percent of people right. that have actually gone to and done an intake screening that have been issued a citation for that in Oregon since that law has been there. So that's just an example, I think, of of how we have to be very thoughtful and careful as a society if we're going to continue to exist as a society that doesn't fall apart when we look at those things. So great, great points. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to uh, to Cassidy's case then. So there's been a lot of people on X uh, arguing all about uh, like people like Jenna Ellis, for example, arguing all about how this wasn't the way that he should have done it. If he had a real issue with it, he should have fought the uh, the statue being put up, um, the legality of that in course. So he should have gone through the uh, the proper means of addressing the situation. So, I mean, I mean, first of all, my initial thought: I assume that there <laughs> that uh, to do that would be essentially pointless because I believe that the statue is only going to be on display for like 14 days or something like that. Uh, there was a time limit to it, so I'm assuming that 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 point is kind of mute because moot because of how long it would have taken to address it. But I mean, what's your response to people that have that criticism? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things to think about. I think that you know those that are sitting on the sidelines and not acting can can always criticize those those people that that take action. Number yeah. one, number two, I will I will tell you, you know, Michael Michael's a fighter pilot. That's his background, right? That's his background. Um, this wasn't premeditated. This wasn't planned out. This wasn't uh, a long drawn out thought process for him. This was this was a moment of righteous indignation. 
and he acted. And even in that act, he then uh, realized, you know, I need to clean this up. I need to make this this clean. I need to pick up the garbage and I'm going to submit myself to to the appropriate law enforcement. So I, I think that's important. Now, after the fact, if we're going to Monday morning quarterback this thing, we could talk about a lot of things. But but here's here's the issue um, in the state of Iowa. There's there's an application process. I believe that there were elected leaders, officials, you know, appointed officials, magistrates, if you will, civil magistrates in Iowa that were afraid to say no to this. Right. So, you know, I, I would say they failed to act when they could have to put a stop to this evil. They could have said, no, we're not going to approve a an idol being put up to honor an embodiment of evil. That's not appropriate. We're, we're going to say no. And then, yes, potentially this satanic organization could have sued the state of Iowa. They could have sued the state legislature and they could have been involved in long drawn out legislation about whether or not they can they can put this up there. Right. And and so, sure, we can talk about that. But what we do know is that elected leaders, the officials there didn't act. They didn't put a stop to this. They didn't act to to take it down, disassemble it and face the consequences. So a citizen um, acted, saw this injustice and acted accordingly. Um, and again, he's going to there are going to be consequences that we're going to work through with him. Um, you know, I believe there's there's justification here potentially. Again, I don't want to go into all the details just yet. But I do think there's questions about whether or not this was a just act um, and whether or not his actions were justified, particularly in the unique, peaceful, uh, nonviolent way that he handled himself and subjecting himself to law enforcement. But that is, um, you know, that's for a later time. But I don't think um, there was a lot that could have been done differently if we're going to step back. And, and really the question is, why didn't someone act? Why didn't elect an elected leader in Iowa act? And are, and I use this example already, but I just go back to this point. Are we going to recognize moral limits on what we're going to allow to be displayed in public in a government building? I mean, would it be okay to, to erect a statue of Molech and picture, you know, dismembered infants before yeah. a statue of Molech, would we allow that in in the government building? I mean, that's the same type of thing that we're dealing with here. That's what this stands for. This stands for death and destruction and murder. Um, and so, I, I do think we can recognize that. Again, we can talk about legislative morality and other things, but we can recognize we would all object to a monument to the KKK being erected in the Iowa State Capitol building, and people should be there. There should have been a reaction to this. I think part of what what is just resonating with so many people is why didn't someone act? This was up for almost two weeks. Right. No, no one acted. Why didn't someone act? Why wasn't this a bigger deal? I think that was that's convicting. That should be convicting to all Christians throughout this nation is is why weren't we more concerned? We're, right. It bothered us. People were talking about how much it bothered them. But, but why what wasn't something done? Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, I, I, I have actually something that's been I, I don't know if it's funny, frustrating, a little bit of both. But uh, I've seen so many posts of individuals um, where there were screenshots of basically before the incident with with uh, Cassidy occurred. 
And uh, there were so many individuals that were like, man, someone just needs to go in there and tear it down. And, you know, someone beneath them would be like, oh, yeah, Mr. Big Tough Guy, like anyone's like, you're actually going to go and do that. And then it's like someone did it. And then, of course, all those same people that were saying, oh, yeah, Mr. Tough Guy, all of them are the ones that are out there, you know, like, oh, this shouldn't have been done. And it's like, guys, you practically were like prodding for a response by telling people like, oh, yeah, you're, you're all talk, you know, and that's just. Uh, that's just annoying. That's just something that's bothered me personally. But um, so a couple things that I wanted to touch on as well. Um, so the FACE Act and all the stories surrounding the FACE Act. And for those who don't know, I, I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's essentially uh, it's essentially the, the legislation that was passed that prevents individuals from uh, preventing someone access to a medical facility. And of course, that's being used specifically for the uh, for Planned Parenthood and uh, individuals that are pro-abortion to, uh, to now justify um, legally pursuing their ideological opponents um, who are outside of Planned Parenthood praying over individuals and trying to convince mothers not to go and abort their babies. And in recent times, the FACE Act has now been used by the DOJ to really overreach and and uh, really persecute uh, individuals who were accused of violating it, even ones who had been acquitted. Um, I'm spacing on his name now, but we've covered him previously on the show. But there's a man uh, in Pennsylvania who was raided by uh, by the federal government uh, at gunpoint at his house because he had been accused of the FACE Act uh, by an incident that a lower court had already uh, acquitted him of and basically said no harm, no foul and throughout the case. Well, the DOJ picked it up, I believe almost like two years later. Uh, it's been a little foggy, so feel free to check back in the old episode. But I'm saying all this to say, do you think that there, I mean, do you suspect that there could be an incident where where a higher court is going to intervene or the DOJ is going to try to use this as an opportunity to persecute Cassidy to use, to basically make an example out of him? You know, I, I, I don't think so. I think that there are, um, I, I don't think there's a legal basis or legal theory that it would allow for that. Because again, this wasn't something like pre-planned or premeditated. So I really don't think there's something there. It, it could happen, unfortunately, particularly with this DOJ that we have in place. Elections have consequences. So, right. you know, I think that's that's part of the reason why so many people have gotten behind him and and worked hard to create a legal defense fund for him. So in that eventuality, there are resources there to help him if, if it did go there. I, I don't think that's um, I don't think that's where this is headed. But you're, you're absolutely right. You're talking about Mark Houck, the gentleman in Pennsylvania yes, yes. who was, you know, uh, they, they tried to prosecute him under the FACE Act. He was acquitted of that. And that was after the state of Pennsylvania had looked at it and uh, not brought any charges or dismissed any charges against him. But it is a constant concern. But again, you know, the FACE Act, one of the concerns I have with the FACE Act is talk about legislating morality. Um, you know, that that is a federal law specifically designed to target people who are engaged in a peaceful effort, typically in a peaceful effort to save the lives of unborn children. Right. So let's I mean, that's that's the activity that Mark Halk was in, engaged in. He was doing this. And the FACE Act is a is a reflection of a legislation of morality by people that that want to and desire the murder of unborn children. So I think those are some those are some of the realities we have to wake up to, because, again, this 
this idea of, of a neutral public square is a myth and it's a That's dangerous true. myth. It's a lie. I mean, I think it's a satanic deception, quite frankly, um, but it does cause so many churches and so many good Christians to just simply, you know, pietistically wash their hands of what's going on in the world. Um, and it has dangerous and negative consequences for society when that happens. Yeah, exactly. Now, you, you did mention uh, that, that you don't think there's a, a legal um, justification for that type of overreach to occur. And I would say that that's the same case with the, those FACE Act incidences. But um, obviously, you're, you're the legal expert. I'm not. Uh, but <laughs> but all, all that to say, I think, that, uh, I think that they maybe would do that overreach. Now, the good thing is I, I hope <laughs> that uh, outright Satanism is still unpopular enough to where I don't think the, that the Biden administration wants to put their name behind that. If, if they're going to jump into anything, you know, uh, with the, the warped idea of uh, women's rights, at least the, the groundwork has been laid for them to sort of uh, uh, come in with the, the FACE Act and, uh, and sort of have some cover that they're just uh, really adamant about protecting a woman's right, whereas uh, protecting the, the right of Satanists to erect an idol maybe is not uh, the most popular thing to do uh, so close to an election. But <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Michaela in the chat said, we can't acknowledge two gods. America says, in God we trust. We can't possibly say that as Americans, we should acknowledge Satanism as a religion in the courts. And similarly, playing off of that, the Renaissance of Man said, if it's freedom of Satanist expression to put it up, is it not freedom of Christian expression to tear it down? <laughs> there we go. Once Upon a Reset also said, engagement with the false left-right American political paradigm is just as morally corrupt as engaging with outright Satanism. You could even argue that it is worse because of its hidden evils. The average American citizen, including most Christians, are drunk slash intoxicated on the false left-right American political paradigm, and most will remain this way from the womb to the tomb. I do agree with that to a point. Um... I, I think that it's correct that we shouldn't focus on just left and right. I think that uh, especially, you know, the individuals that we refer to as the Uniparty, they really want us to focus on left and right. Um, but uh, more to Davis's point, it's really good versus evil. Now, sometimes the reason why I say I don't fully agree with that is just because sometimes, you know, we are faced with a decision where we have to make a choice between, you know, uh, a crap sandwich or a crap sandwich that wants to kill you. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, bad, bad analogy there. But, you know, my point is the Republican Party has plenty of flaws, lots of corruption. But at the end of the day, we do sometimes have to pick a political vehicle to try to bring about some um, some moral wins. Not that it's ever going to be perfect. But uh, anyways, that's just uh, my response to that. And feel free to add anything additional to that if you want, Davis. Yeah, you know, I would just say to that, I think that that is one of the, the challenges we face. We live in a fallen world. So we have all of these imperfect politicians. We have people that are involved in politics for imperfect reasons, imperfect motivations. They become corrupted by the system, whether it's power, money, whatever it is. And so it can be easy to sort of fall into that dynamic. But I also think we can say, okay, if, if one party, for example, has a pro-life platform when it comes to abortion and another party has a clear uh, pro-death platform, then we can look at that and say, okay, with, we can evaluate, you know, I, I would struggle to vote for someone, I guess I would say that, that can sign off on a platform that is pro-death, that is in right. favor of, of murdering unborn children. So, you know, I do think sometimes we complicate 
things and we can simply say it's not that we vote on one issue but we can say you know there are certain things where where good versus evil is pretty clear and and i think we can vote and act accordingly sometimes it's not a choice sometimes it's a shade of gray um even on that issue but again i do struggle to understand how some people can say well if one party has a pro-life platform and they say that's what they stand for and another party has a pro-death platform um that that's where i struggle i think um maybe similar to some of the concerns you have but that's it's it's never easy i guess in a, right. in a fallen world right now at the end of the day when you're voting for someone that says that they're pro-life um that's what you're putting your vote behind if they choose to betray that when they get to washington or whatever office they hold that's not you know that that's them betraying their voters that's them betraying the platform that they stand for so it's more it's more upon the voters to hold those people accountable than it is to be like oh well let's let's just the republican party is no good it's like no let's reform it because let's actually hold them to the ideals that they say they espouse but we could go on all night about that but um i wanted to to just briefly uh, mention the statues that were removed over the last several years of different monumental figures um, of our country, whether that be uh, Jefferson, Grant, Washington, um, many of these statues were vandalized and outright taken down, some uh, through the legal means that uh, Jenna Ellis was talking about, um, and others through just uh, a mob coming and tearing down the statue. So when it comes to those statues, obviously there's a lot of uh, there's been a lot of conversation from the uh, the sort of more freedom-minded side of the aisle uh, saying that, you know, we absolutely shouldn't be tearing down these statues. They're a monument to our history. Obviously, the argument is now being used on X for, oh, I thought you guys didn't like when statues were taken down uh, in, re in regards to the Michael Cassidy incident. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe uh, speak to that a bit, Davis. I know we've touched on aspects of that argument, but let's go ahead and maybe flesh that out further. Yeah, you know, honestly, I, I really don't think it's a, a good comparison um, to what happened in this situation. And I brought up the Boston Tea Party earlier, and I would just kind of say that again. You know, the Boston Tea Party involved a limited, targeted, specific um, dumping of tea, which was private property, and about $2 million worth in today's money of private property into the harbor for political reasons after political means had been exhausted. Right. And so I, I think that's a better comparison here. This is it was in a government building. It was being permitted to be displayed by the government, but it was private property and it was taken down and disassembled in a non-disruptive, peaceful, nonviolent way. And then the individual that did it was willing to turn himself into law enforcement and face the consequences for it. So I think that's very, very different than, you know, riots or wanton destruction of of a statue or a memorial and then the the other difference is many 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 of these statues and memorials are are paid for with tax dollars these are erected by the government they're erected by tax dollars or in, in cooperation with that and so it's not private property so i do think there is a distinction there and i don't think it's it's necessarily the same thing i think you can also say it is a question of good versus evil i think i can with a clean conscience and without any any hypocrisy at all say i don't think it's appropriate to take down a or defile a statue or deface a statue of thomas jefferson um because he was a historical figure but a flawed and sinful man but it's 
but I think I can say it's not okay to do that, but it is okay to recognize worshiping Satan is evil and bad and not good and destructive and has no place in our society. And, and that should be taken down. And, and I think that we need to be able to have those conversations in a free society. We need to be able to have that conversation about that, but we also need to just simplify it and say, some things are evil and they, they should not have a place in a government building in a free nation and our free society. Amen. I agree. It's a sad day though, that we have to pretend that the removal of Thomas Jefferson is on equal moral footing as the removal of a statue to literally Satan. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's, you know. that's where the argument is. And, and, and I mean, it almost, I mean, it almost seems like, like comedy, right. But, but again, you know, it's like, it is, it is Christ or chaos. I mean, we are in the upside down when we, when we are, when we are trying to justify evil and there are a lot more examples, you know, I mean, there, there are people that want to justify drag queen story hour yep. or provocative shows for children by drag queens um, in public uh, it, you know, that seems like grooming for pedophilia that, well, that's protected by the first amendment. We can't say no to that. No, I, I think we can, especially when we're talking about it involving children, because that's, that's evil. That's, that's not okay. And we, we can't stand by for that. Um, because that gets very, very dangerous very quickly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to pivot to, the topic that we were initially going to discuss, which is the state of the military, because you obviously have a lot of experience with that, given your background. Um, so let's go ahead and 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 start there. Um, maybe if you can just go ahead and give us sort of a summary of how you currently see the state of our American military. Yeah, you know, i i look at I look at the state of the military today, and I just I just shake my head and I I wonder sadly how we got here. Again, I love the military. I love the men and women that served. Like I said before, I retired as a lieutenant colonel from the United States Air Force Reserves after serving 11 years on active duty. I, um, I've represented countless military members. I deployed, supported um, Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. So um, I, I do bring a perspective on that. But where we're at today in our military, you know, just the the reality of the picture in our military today is we are in the midst of a recruiting and retention crisis. That means we cannot keep good people in the military. People are leaving the military um, early. They're they're not re-enlisting. They're not signing up for more time and, and kind of somewhat unprecedented levels. So we're looking at a real retention crisis, which is extremely expensive, costly, and can be dangerous in the long run to our national security. But the other thing we're seeing at the same time is a recruiting crisis, meaning that that people are not joining the military at the same rate and the same percentage as they normally do. And so that is a serious problem. But one of the issues we see, and as we start to dive in, we can talk about kind of specific, you know, what is the diagnosis? Those are the symptoms. Obviously there's something significantly wrong in our military, but I think there's a lot of different things we can look at, you know, to diagnose this and the cause, but that that is the reality. It is, it is not hyperbole to say there's a retention crisis and there is a recruiting crisis in our military. Hmm. So given the, I mean, I mean, do you think that the military is actually prepared if there was conflict? Um, you know, a, a difficult, difficult question. I have serious concerns about um, 
aspects of our military readiness when we look just across the board, when we look at the state of our equipment and other things. And, and here's the problem. The Department of Defense, our military has a larger budget, almost double than any other nation in the world, right? So look at China, look at any other nation in the world. Our military budget in this country is almost double that of any other nation. And the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, cannot pass a financial audit. They haven't passed a financial audit since you have to go back to the 80s and there weren't even significant audits done then. So they've essentially failed these six key audits that have been done in a row. So so what does that mean? Why is that concerning? That means that you have an organization that's given unprecedented amounts of money and resources that cannot account for personnel, supplies, can't even account for where money is being spent but they keep being given a blank check. So if it was a business, if it was a large charity, if it was a church where they cannot pass a a financial audit, they can't pass a personnel audit, they can't pass an inventory audit, um, again and again and again, we would say that there's something wrong with this organization. There's something fundamentally wrong with it. And if people aren't being held accountable for it, that's a problem. So, you know, the, the common solution that we see politically and, and in Washington is we dump more. If there's a problem in the military, what do we do? We dump more money into it. We dump more money into it. And that's a very popular thing for the uniparty to say, well, you know, we can't touch military funding. We can't touch uh, how we support our troops. Don't you want to support the troops? But if we can't even pass an audit to understand where the resources are going and no one's held accountable for wasting resources, that's one of the big problems with the military. Yeah. And to your point, you talked about, you know, how, how we can't even, we can't even, not only can we not audit them, but we, we can't even prevent the military from sort of abusing a lot of the funding that, we, that we've given them. And uh, specifically, you mentioned that it's, it's really hard for legislators to, uh, especially Republican ones, to, to say that they uh, are okay with defunding uh, some of this, um, some of the military aid. We, we just recently passed the, the NDAA, and those who don't know, it's the National Defense Authorization Act. And uh, in fact, let me go ahead and pull up this, uh, this chart here. So this is a post from Chip Roy. So this is actually comparing the NDAA, the the House bill, and Chuck Schumer in the Senate, his bill, and then it shows the compromise bill. So this is what the GOP-led House originally was was uh, trying to get done with the uh, NDAA. So they were trying to end Biden's uh, Biden's tax-funded abortion travel fund and the taxpayer-funded gender transition surgeries. That's happening in the military as well, and Biden's radical climate agenda. Protect service members who were discharged for refusing the COVID-19 vaccine, something you're very familiar with. Ban drag shows and drag queen story hour on DOD installations. Prohibits critical race theory within the military. Creates an inspector general for Ukraine aid accountability. Prohibits race-based admissions at military academies. Eliminates chief diversity officers. And then expends the abusive FISA spying powers. That's a really big one that uh, so many individuals were incredibly uh, bothered with as well. And Schumer's bill, of course, had none of that. So then the compromise bill, so this is what was actually passed in the Senate. And for those of you in the state of Tennessee, like myself, uh, both of our senators voted to pass this compromise bill, which is a load of crap. 
So here's the compromise bill. It did not end the taxpayer-funded abortion. It did not end the uh, gender transition surgeries that are funded by taxpayer expense. It did not end the uh, climate agenda that's being uh, siphoned straight from our taxpayer dollars straight into the military. Uh, it did not protect the, well, it, it sort of protect the members who are discharged uh, from the COVID-19 vaccine. And we can talk about that in a moment because I know that's your area of expertise, yeah, Davis. Right. And then uh, it did not ban the drag green story hours uh, or the, the drag shows, I should say, um, on the DOD installations. It did prohibit critical race theory. Now, the reason why that's not much of a win is they just keep renaming critical race theory and they just keep disguising it as different things. So that's kind of an easy workaround, honestly, for uh, the DOD to comply with. They just have to not label it critical race theory. And um, I'm sure there, there's um, a pretty easy workaround in that in that front. Then uh, creates an inspector general for Ukraine aid accountability. Uh, the compromise on that was weak is what this uh, this graphic is showing us here. I don't know all the specifics on that, but then it did not prohibit race-based admissions and it did not eliminate the chief diversity officer and it did extend the abusive FISA spying powers. So basically the only sort of win that we got there was, uh, was really the COVID-19 vaccine. So, I mean, do you know, do you have much of an update for us on uh, the effectiveness of this supposed win that we received from funding the NDAA? Uh, as it applies to the COVID va to the COVID-19 vaccine, it's it's not even close to a win. And mm -hmm. and in fact, for for me, for most of my clients, the language that was in there we were advocating against because it's uh, it was it's offensive at the end of the day. So so I, I can get into the background a, a little bit on that. So what what a lot of people that don't understand about the COVID fight in the military and understand it, they think it was, you know, primarily about a vaccine and military members get a ton of vaccines. I had a ton of vaccines when I served in the military. That's normal course of business for the military to give a lot of vaccines. So people think, well, what, what was the big deal about this vaccine? There were, there were two huge issues behind this COVID vaccine mandate that, that were the problem. And they really did create what I would call a constitutional crisis. And I don't think that's hyperbole. So two issues. The first was related to religious accommodation requests. In the United States military, when you join the military, you swear an oath to support and defend the constitution. Constitutional rights still apply to military members. There can be limits on them based on the nature of military service or limits on your first amendment, free speech rights in a uniform, things like that. But ultimately constitutional rights still apply. Religious accommodations are, are part of our military. And over the last few decades, we've gotten better in recognizing religious accommodations in the military. And there's federal law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And what it basically says is the default answer to a religious accommodation is yes. If you serve in the United States military and you have a religious objection to something, the military is supposed to do an individualized look at it and say, can we reasonably accommodate this without compromising the mission? So, for example, you could be in the military and um, you could you could be a vegan or a vegetarian. And guess what? You can go to the chow hall and there's going to be options for you to do that. Now, in a deployed environment, is it going to be perfect? Maybe if there's austere environments, no, but is the military going to do what they can to accommodate that? Certainly. Absolutely. There, there's a long history of that. There's uniform exceptions for, for religion that occur 
Um, and, you know, even to the point of what I would say absurdity um, in some respects, things like um, beard accommodations for someone who claims to be Norse pagan in the military. So in limited circumstances, perhaps you should get that. But what happened during COVID is the military engaged in an intentional plan to ignore the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, to ignore religious accommodations, and they just engaged in a plan to blanket deny religious accommodation requests, not do an individualized review, even at a point when the CDC and all experts around the world were saying, you know, natural immunity is just as good or better than the vaccines. We don't, there was, you know, right at the time the mandate came out for the military, the week before the CDC put out guidance for schools that basically said, hey, treat those with natural immunity and those that have had the vaccine the same. There's not even really a point in doing anything different with those folks. That's what the CDC put out as guidance the week before the military mandate went in place. And again, the military just, not only did they just blanket deny religious accommodation requests, they were bold about it. They encouraged chaplains to trap military members into talking about politics instead of their faith in these interviews. Um, and in litigation in federal litigation in a federal appeals court an attorney for the, working for the department of defense in that litigation employed by the department of justice literally told the judge that they didn't believe they had to comply with the religious freedom restoration act they believed they could ignore it and that it was only a, an issue that they had to comply with if they were sued and a judge told them they had to comply with a federal law, right? Which brings us to the other piece uh, of the objection that people had to the COVID mandate. There is a federal law in place that prohibits the United States military from, from experimenting on or forcing military members to take an emergency use or an experimental use authorization medication. Because unfortunately, we have a sad history of the military experimenting on military personnel and not giving them informed consent in doing it. So there is a very narrow exception where the president of the United States can issue an exception in certain circumstances, but otherwise it is against federal law for the military to mandate someone take an emergency use authorization vaccine. What happened during COVID is the FDA approved a formula of a vaccine that according to the FDA, according to the FDA documents was legally distinct from the emergency use authorization vaccine that the vaccine, the pharmaceutical companies had produced in mass, in mass, right? So I say all of that to say um, there was a legitimate legal question as to whether or not an FDA approved vaccine was available for military members. And that was one of the issues. So it was a question of whether or not it was a lawful order to receive a vaccine when there was no FDA approved vaccine made available. And literally military members were going and they were asking, "May I, can I see the vial of the vaccine that you're going to give me? And it would say emergency use authorization on it, not FDA approved emergency use authorization. So again, I say that to say that created a constitutional crisis because to many, and I, I was arguing that the executive branch was ignoring federal law and mandating this, and it was not a lawful order. This NDAA does nothing to address the violations of the Religious Freedom uh, Restoration Act or these religious accommodations, and it calls the order, the language in the NDAA called the order a lawful order. So it said those who were discharged because they violated a lawful order to get the vaccine 
can come back in and they mm. can apply to have their records fixed by the Board of Corrections or what's called the Discharge Review Board. This NDAA does nothing for these military members. It does it does nothing they couldn't already do on their own before this NDAA. And that language about a lawful order is a slap in the face because that yeah. was one of the legal issues that wasn't litigated in the federal courts because every time it came close, the federal courts would say it was moot or you couldn't get in the courtroom door. So we had to individually fight that. So I fought that administrative separation boards. And, you know, the first board that it was presented to in the Navy, the Navy officers that were presented that evidence agreed with my client and myself that it was not a lawful order, that the government couldn't prove it was a lawful order to do that. But that that wasn't addressed in, in federal court. The, the lawyers that were bringing that civil litigation never got in the courthouse door to address that specific issue. So unfortunately, um, this NDAA did nothing to protect these military members. Um, and it really was somewhat offensive that it had that lawful order language in there. So now we go back to the retention and the recruiting crisis. What, what people don't realize, it was a story a couple of weeks ago, but the Army and the Air Force are sending out letters to military members. They kicked out, they discharged them over the COVID mandate, whether it was a, a religious accommodation or whether they were challenging lawfulness of the order, they kicked them out. They got a DD-214. That's your separation certificate from the United States military. That's the document you have as a veteran that documents your military service. And it says commission of a serious offense or serious misconduct. And they received a less, less than honorable discharge, right? Most of them received a general discharge, which means loss of the GI Bill, loss of veterans preference points for jobs. And you have this DD-214. Employers asked to see that. And it says you committed a serious offense. So there are thousands of military members in that boat. And the Air Force and the Army sent out form letters that said, hey, come back in and serve if you want to. We're not going to fix your DD-214. We're not going to do any of those things to make it right. But you can apply to the Board of Corrections or the Discharge Review Board, which you could already do but that's a two to three year process with a very low percentage success rate. Good grief. <laughs> I know that's a lot. Sorry. I feel like I, no, I you're, you're fine. You, you took us on a journey and we needed to, we needed to hear it. And it's just wild that, I mean, unfortunately it's, it's really sad that, you know, my two senators in the state of Tennessee voted for that because ultimately they, they have decent voting records overall compared to most senators. The Senate is just a, a whole, a whole uh, <laughs> circus in general, um, but uh, but my goodness, that's still. I think ultimately, it's just boils down to they don't want to they don't want to say that they cut funding towards the military because it sounds good if you just leave it at that. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you realize no, they they didn't they weren't willing to fight by holding some of the funding hostage in order to get actual conservative wins in the military. They, they basically did nothing to stop the military from actually being taken over. And they didn't, it sounds like they basically did nothing for the, uh, the individuals who were uh, discharged due to the COVID vaccine, as, as we just learned. And so that's, that's absolutely disappointing. And I think anyone in Tennessee should definitely make sure to let uh, uh, Marsha Blackburn and, and uh, Haggerty know, because uh, they need to hear from us and, you know, do so respectfully, of course. But um, yeah, I, I mean, unfortunately, it really does seem like they are they are really gunning to capture the military completely. It's usually one of the most conservative institutions by nature, and it's one of the institutions that's the most trusted uh, by the public. 
but they are well on their way to capturing that. Um, last time you and I spoke, and those who didn't actually hear, I don't think I said at the beginning of the episode, but we actually did this interview before on the military specifically, um, and uh, basically the interview didn't say it for me. So that's why we had to had to have this conversation again. So there's a little bit of uh, deja vu here, and I want to make sure that an important point you mentioned last time, you talked about uh, specifically that there's essentially a sort of chaplain, a sort of pagan chaplain that's trying to recruit people into uh, sort of like Norse paganism. You mentioned it briefly a moment ago, but can you uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so there are there are so many examples because you know people want to say, well, the the COVID, what happened with COVID? Again, it's a, it's a symptom of a deeper problem in in the military that we have going on. So everything else we see in society, the military is always going to be a microcosm of society. So some of these absurd things we see happening throughout the rest of the nation begin to happen in the military. So one of the things um, that was it was a brand new news story that was out right before we talked last time is you have. Uh, Herbert Field, which is an Air Force base in Florida, they were active. The chaplaincy was actively recruiting for their their Norse pagan worship group. Okay, and and why is that? Why is that such a big deal in the military? Well, again, it comes to something absurd because I would just ask the question: Okay, what if if someone is embracing Norse paganism as a religion? What, what does that mean? What does that stand for? What does that believe in? And is that in any way consistent with the fundamental values, even the core values of our United States military? Uh, there's a lot of things we could go into about Norse paganism, but but living that out, is that what we want our military to do? And is that going to be, you know, are we going to justify war crimes because someone is is a Norse pagan? Right. Are we going to turn our back on those things? So th- those are the kinds of things that are happening. But trust in the military is so critical. So this is absolutely fascinating to me. You know, in, in 2015, so I live in Pennsylvania. In Carlisle, Pennsylvania, you have the Army War College. So each branch of the service, the Navy has a war college, the Air Force has a war college, the Army War College, this prestigious institution that is designed to train senior military leaders, right? And even military leaders from all over the world come to the war college. And so they have professors and they, they teach these things. And, and one, one of the things that happened at the Army War College is that we're going to do a study because we see if you look and you look at the big picture statistics, you know, Congress has a very low trust from the American people. Other institutions have low levels of trust. Some have higher. The military had the highest level of trust. If you look at an institution, American society, 2015, the military had this high level of trust and respect from the American people. But at the same time, these professors at the Army War College did a study and they demonstrated in a paper that there was a integrity crisis in the United States Army Officer Corps in particular. And, and they just did simple things like looking at whether or not they were being honest in inspections and reports that military leaders are required to do. And they found that there were military leaders who were signing off as having completed all mandatory training for the year for their organization when it was actually physically impossible to complete all of the training requirements in a year because it was too many man hours. Right. And so they realized there was just simple things where everyone is just checking the box and saying, yes, we did this when it was impossible for them to have done so. And that just sticks out in my mind. I'll never forget that. I actually had dinner with one of the professors that that was involved in that study. But it stuck in my mind because if you look at the military since then, you will now see a steady decline in trust in the military. So in other words, the American people are seeing 
concerns with integrity in the military. They're hearing stories. The biggest recruiting base for the military is always from families who have a history of military service, yeah. right? That that's always, it's always your second, third, fourth generation that, that typically serve in the military and continue to serve. And if you, if you have a lack of trust, if you see leadership failures over and over again, then you have that. And that just brings in this, this ongoing crisis that you see. So COVID is just the most recent, you know, situation. Many people saw it as a purge that COVID was an excuse to purge Right. conservatives, Christians to to purge people that were going to take a stand and actually stand up for their oath and to test and see which leaders, you know, were uh, were willing to fudge the rules just to get everybody in their unit and their organization vaccinated. Um, so do I think there was an organized purge? Not necessarily, but, you know, look at the extreme extent that some military leaders went to with their unit and organization to get people vaccinated. Yeah. The Navy had a policy for many, many, many Navy units that prevented the unvaccinated military members from going to church. Couldn't go to church if you were un, if you were unvaccinated. You couldn't go on leave and go home to your family. Um, there's there's a documentary put on uh, it was put out by the Republic Sentinel. It's called Seals Beat Biden. It's available free at SealsBeatBiden.com. Um, but there's a Navy SEAL in there that was one of my clients. And he talks about the fact he was deployed and the guys that were not vaccinated were told that they were quarantined. They were put in confinement like conditions and they were told they would not be able to go home. They would not be able to get onto a military plane and go home to their families at their end of deployment if they were not vaccinated. Despite religious objections or other objections um, or the process, that's the kind of pressure that was put on. And again, that that just demonstrates there's things that were wrong. We could recognize it as wrong in the way that were handled. And yet military leaders went along with it because they wanted to protect their pension. They wanted to protect their career. There was a political agenda behind it. Um, and it didn't start with COVID. It started with critical race theory. It started with other things before that. So now we have a military where we are paying. We are using taxpayer dollars to pay for transgender surgeries. I'll just understand what that means hormone therapy and surgery for for someone who is in the military means that individual not only is it going to cost up to potentially half a million dollars for all of that medical treatment surgeries and everything else to be to be done that individual is not going to be fit to serve right for for years potentially if they're undergoing that kind of therapy so why, why does that even make sense on any level that we're going to use taxpayer money to do that in the military? And it's the same with the abortion travel issue. You know, the the military has created a program where they are facilitating abortions by giving military members travel money. They're paying for their travel. They're giving them paid time off and and free leave to go and travel out of state to have an abortion if they're if they're stationed somewhere where there's a restriction on abortion and it's after that term or whatever it is. So so those are things that are just evil. They're morally reprehensible. But our military is doing that. And that doesn't even go into the, the diversity, equity, inclusion, the critical race theory and all these other critical theory things that are there, because 
you know, that all happened even before COVID. I sat through that. I sat through training that would blow people's minds when it comes to what the military is teaching our military members. So it's not the Constitution. It's not, you know, going out to the firing range and learning how to do your job. It's, oh, no, no, we're going to teach you that anyone who believes in something to the point where they'd be willing to risk their lives for an ideology is an extremist. Anyone who's willing to risk their lives for an ideology, for a belief system is an extremist. And I'm sitting there in a room full of military officers going, that's what every one of us did when we swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. It's all foreign majestic. We're literally saying, this is an idea. This is a system of beliefs that's founded in a Constitution that we believe in so much we're willing to risk our lives for it. That's exactly what we're asked to do. And then you're calling us an extremist. So that's just a bizarre message to teach military members. Even worse, just this year, the Air Force had official training at official training. And one of the things they were doing is they were talking about how to look for potential predators in the military when it comes to sexual assault. And they put out a training slide where they said one of the one of the factors you should look for, among others, is if it is a male who is hyper masculine, mm. who has a traditional view of marriage and, and human sexuality. That, those are factors being masculine um, and having a traditional view of marriage and human sexuality. Those, wow. those are risk factors as a predator. That's that's what the United States Air Force is teaching our service members. So you wonder why there's a recruiting crisis. You wonder why we are, we are having issues with retention. We're having issues with readiness and sustainability. And we haven't even touched on the disaster that was the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the impact that had on people like me, um, who that that was my military service. My military service was the global war on terror. Yeah. I was in law school when 9-11 happened. I went into the military to support that effort when I deployed. It was in support of what was happening in Afghanistan. And and to see that disastrous withdrawal and it for to feel like it was for nothing. It was it was just too and it's um yep. Got a dog barking here. That's all right. That's all right. Um, so, so again, there's there's a lot of symptoms that are there in our military, um, and it's a huge problem, and it does create um, a national security risk that we we have to deal with on some level. So, um, I, I, again, obviously, that's my heartbeat. That's what I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about um, and working on issues related to that for military members because I do care. I want to see us have. Um, a strong national defense. I want to see us have a government that prioritizes our own people, our own nation, um, protecting the innocent. Um, but but we're not there right now. We've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, once upon a reset said, this upside down world isn't happening in a vacuum. The corruption is very much a construct, a contrived deconstruction, demolition of our current world order. The controlling cabal are incrementalists. And, you know, it, it, kind of to your point, I don't know how much of it's intentional. I'm sure some of it is. I mean, you saw uh, D Dick Durbin, um, you know, talked uh, about maybe a couple weeks ago about uh, trying to extend military membership to illegal immigrants. So it's like they quite literally are importing people who have no loyalty to the country. And obviously it's going to be a, a 
political battle to get there. But if the Democrats had their way, they would they would allow illegal immigrants to join the military. And many Republicans probably feel the same way. I mean, we see already how how they're 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 squishes when it comes to the military and pushing back on something the military requests. And ultimately, you know, I don't want to get too conspiratorial here, but um, you know, so many people they like you said they they trust the military and and obviously you've you've laid out reasons why maybe they should have some reservations but i mean how much more could you uh, could you how much more would you trust the military where all the individuals are completely foreign literally foreign to the country and you know if they ever did want to do something like force lockdowns like some of the crazy stuff that we saw out of australia and some of those places that went way more totalitarian in the lockdowns um, you know, I believe so many of our service members uh, would absolutely have not uh, stood for it. But, you know, they'll just replace them with illegal immigrants if they have their way and uh, people that are not loyal to the country. It's, uh, um, I believe it's, uh, no, it's not Plato. It's Aristotle that says the tyrant prefers the foreigner to the citizen. And unfortunately, that's kind of what we see with uh, the Dick Durbin stuff. And then, of course, D- DEI only exacerbates the problem because even those who, uh, you know, came illegally, but then they have a, a next generation that is a citizen, um, you know, those are individuals that can go and apply currently and will get priority because of DEI uh, um, systems already set in place in the military. So that's just ridiculous as well. Um, I want to make sure that we spend some time talking about what you think actual solutions are for reforming our military or if you want to say recapturing our military. Um, and then of course, please tell us about your work. It's really important. I did put sealsbeatbiden.com uh, at the bottom of the screen there. Hopefully I've got that uh, correct. Feel free to correct me if I'm off on that, but uh, go ahead, Davis, tell us about uh, what kind of things we can actually do to reform. Yeah, I, I think that that is a, a great question and it, and it takes time, right? We didn't we didn't get into this situation with our military overnight. Um, we we need um, to have, you know, people growing up. We need to have an education system in America. We have, need to have churches that talk about history well. The idea of bringing in foreign nationals, illegal immigrants into the military, that's part of what caused Rome to fall. Right. So we have to recognize history, not just our own history, but ancient history. I mean, there was a time in the Roman Empire. People don't realize this. Instead of referring to soldiers as soldiers in the Latin tongue, they 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 had a term that essentially meant barbarian. There were so many foreigners in the legions that they started referring to all Roman soldiers as barbarians um, in that. So. So I say that to say we need an appreciation for our own history. But ultimately, the bottom line is it is a sin issue. We see, you know, cultural rot in our society because of of sin and because people are are not repenting and turning to God. It's the same in our military, just like the rest of our society was designed for a moral people. Our founding documents were written and and thought through by men, even if they weren't all Christians or born again Christians, they at least understood the language of the Bible and they looked to it as a moral and ethical guide. And we're losing that in our military. We're not even teaching it. We're bringing in people into the military that are taught in in public schools to to hate the United States, to see us as a nation as like colonial oppressors. Right. Um, And then you bring those people into the military. What what are you fighting for? And, and so we do need to understand and go back to some of those founding principles. We need to bring God back into the military and we need to be able to then recognize and understand 
just war theory and some of those concepts. So what what are the solutions? We do need um, Christians in the military. So one of the things I've been working on since the COVID is we've we've started during COVID, we started an organization called Stand With Warriors. So Stand With Warriors is an organization that was started by Navy SEALs and pastors, Apologia Church, Jeff Durbin and those guys helped start it as a 501c3 to help these guys in in the coming months it's going to morph into kind of two two phases one we have pastors and former navy seals some who were kicked out over the covid vaccine mandate that are going to be leading small group discipleship and evangelism efforts within the special operations community within the military tip of the spear guys to sort of be the tip of spear to bring christ back into the military so these fundamental values are part of it and then I'm going to be working with attorneys and we're going to build out a way to help Christians in the military address these issues. So we'll do training and then we'll be there to legally defend and help Christians within the military um, administratively and otherwise when they're dealing with these issues, when they're dealing with uh, pronoun mandates and all of those things. So uh, a lot more is coming from those. That's a big part of the, the work that I'm doing. And I would just you know covet anyone who's listening to this your prayer, um, your thoughtfulness for us as we work on those these things. There's a lot of work to be done. And, you know, hopefully churches will engage with this and pastors will be more comfortable engaging on these issues and understanding we just can't abandon the public square and and not expect there to be uh, dire consequences if we do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such important work. Uh, I see the site here. It does show where you can donate. So yeah, guys, standwithwarriors.org. Honestly, important work. I mean, you you don't want to even begin to imagine the terrors of a military that is completely atheistic, devoid of anything Christian and anything moral and being completely captured to do the bidding of uh, people in charge that really don't like you. They don't like you or your values, uh, as we see so many times with the type of stories that we cover on this podcast. So standwithwarriors.org, please go and help Davis out. Um, Davis, I did ask you this uh, this um, last time and it put you on the spot a little bit, but I think it's important with uh, 2024 coming up. Um, what are your thoughts on the Republican primary and specifically just uh, specifically when it comes to the military and um, and just your profession, uh, who do you think is like going to actually bring about a positive change in the military? Do you think there's one guy better than the other? Or do you really think that we're uh, it's kind of a toss up at this point? What are your thoughts on that? Well, what what I will say is under the current administration, um, everything related to military policy, from my perspective, almost without exception has been a disaster so i i don't i don't see um looking to you know re-elect the current administration making a lot of sense i don't see answers there right like i mean that, that i think that's pretty clear um you know it's very interesting what i will say with the trump administration is that you saw him follow through on bringing service members home and and working towards getting us out of constant forever wars. Um, so that's something that I look at and say, okay, there was some follow through there. Um, there, you know, DeSantis is another candidate who has actually served in the military, who has deployed, who has that background. And while I don't think that's necessary for a commander in chief to have a military background, I think some military service is really, really important. And it should be a 
something we look for on a resume. So I do think there's those are issues I think people need to dig into. And I would just submit there was some follow through with these issues with with President Trump. But I also think that DeSantis has some some clear issues uh, that are worth looking at, studying, seeing what he's saying on those things, um, because I think that that would make a difference. I am I'm not a fan of um, anyone in the in politics who is uh, advocating for spending money to protect other nations borders, but isn't doing nothing or not advocating for the protection of our own. So um, I think that's uh, those are things to look at and think about, because if we're not prioritizing the safety of our own people and the security of our own border when it comes to our military policy, then what is the purpose of our military? Um, because it really shouldn't be about empire building and projecting power overseas, especially um, if we can't protect our own border. Yeah. Say no to Nikki Haley, guys. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, man. But, I think it's pretty obvious what we're talking about. Would we would we say would we say that? Right. I think that's absolutely. I don't know. Chris Christie. I mean, he's he's real conservative. Kidding. Everyone's going to clip that. And absolutely beat me to death with it. So do you actually think that in the year 2023 that young men should enlist? That's the real question that I, so many people want answered. Yeah, it, it is really, really hard. It breaks my heart to say I struggle mightily with that question. Even even 10 years ago, very little hesitation on that. So what I do and what I would encourage anyone that's that's working with um, a, a young man that's thinking about serving is is ask why. And that's what I do. I say, why? Why is it you think God is calling you to this why is it you think you want to serve? And that, that I think brings on healthy conversations because often there is a commercialized or idealized view of what military service is and what it means. And, and often there's some misnomers. Um, others, you know, other young men are prepared. So it's, you know, it, it, it's just like anything else. We have to, we need to be preparing our young men through discipleship, through the church, having their around men so that they're prepared to go out. They just, you have to go into military service now and see it. If you're called to it as a mission field and understand you're going to have to be prepared to give up your military career, potentially if things happen that are going to mandate you to violate your Christian faith. So just like there were Navy SEALs who saw what was going on with the COVID vaccine and believed it was wrong, it would violate their faith to go along with it, they were willing to give up their trident, right? This thing that they worked so hard and so few people could ever achieve. They were willing to take their trident off, put it on the table and sacrifice that for their faith. Anyone that goes into military service now needs to go in with that same mindset because at any moment, you know, we're already beginning to fight battles like mandatory pronoun use. So, yeah. so there's going to be, you know, gender tyranny and, and pronoun tyranny in the military, you know, as a Christian, are you going to go along with that that lie? Are you going to go along with that 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 false narrative that hurts people, actually damages people's eternal souls? If we go along with it, um, there's going to be a lot of difficult things that that are young our young men that want to serve are going to face. Yeah, that's good advice. Definitely some things to think about. I'm sure that there are some people, um, given the demographics of our audience, that may honestly you may have answered a. a important question for them. So I really appreciate your transparency on that. Um, we have just a little bit of time left. And I wanted to talk just briefly about your thoughts on 
sort of the balkanization that's occurred. This is me getting more into your your military expertise than your lawyer expertise, maybe. But uh, there's definitely an overlap there. Um, the balkanization of the U.S. that's happened over the last several years that really COVID accelerated greatly. And then, of course, there's talks of uh, national divorce. And then, of course, we saw that there's a new movie coming out uh, based on a, a fictional American civil war. And a lot of people have said that that's uh, predictive programming um, that, uh, you know, Hollywood and, uh, and uh, the sort of powers that be are trying to mentally prepare us for our our future that they are trying to fabricate. So what's your thoughts on, on all that? Um, whether or not a national divorce is a good idea, uh, whether or not you think civil war is possible, uh, what your take on just the balkanization is. You know, I, I think it's deeply, I think it's deeply concerning. And, and what I will say is this, you know, we, we have to learn from history. Our nation fought a horrific and bloody and terrible civil war. And a lot of it happened because there was a breakdown in faith in the political process, right? When, if you can't resolve things through peaceful debate and discussion and, and the valid political process, or there's just pure evil that's persisting, um, then, then things can get very bad and very ugly. So, you know, I, I think what we need to be trying to understand as a nation that that's going to help is things like election integrity, right? And I, and I don't want to go crazy conspiracy, conspiracy theory or anything else, but I just want to say if, if people lose faith in our election process, if people don't trust the elective process, if they don't think their vote is going to make a difference anymore, that's when we start to see people looking at the two other things or feeling forced to go to other things to, you know, protect themselves, protect their families, protect their way of life. And so that's what's dangerous. So, you know, I, I tend to think we have a, a large uh, federal government that is out of control. I think that any 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 move towards centralization, when we think about government, it is a mistake. It leads to tyranny. It leads to waste. So I think there's been a just a gradual um, push since the American Civil War towards more and more centralized power. I think that's a mistake. We should be finding ways to reduce the size of the federal government, to reduce the permanent bureaucracy and return power to local governments in the states. I think that's what we should be focusing on. And then you don't need um, you don't need a civil war, right? The the founding fathers, there were founding fathers that talked about each state was an experiment, right? There's been that's been part of our dialogue. If you don't like what's happening in California, you can move to Florida, you can move to Oklahoma, you can move to Texas. If you don't like what's happening in California, you can move to another state that's different. I think that's the model we should look for. And we should be in, in some respects in a civil society, we should be okay with saying, okay, you know, if, if that's what you want, then we should be able to free to leave and go somewhere else. But if we have too large of a federal government, if we have a federal government that is captured by people that seem to be essentially communist in their political philosophy or Marxist in their philosophy and their desire for centralized control, that's the problem. And ultimately that's going to lead to tyranny, which I do think then is going to lead to potentially conflict that spills over from the political into actual violence. Yeah. Well, let's pray that, that doesn't happen. Let's pray Amen. that uh, we'll see revival in the land and let's pray that we'll see revival in our military. So again, guys, go to standwithwarriors.org. 
really help out what Davis is doing because, again, I just can't stress enough. I think a a captured military, specifically captured by the people that are currently pushing some of the most godless, vile stuff that are defending Satan statues in capital uh, capital buildings. You know, it's just something we do not. We can't even imagine the horrors that could come about that if that uh, fully happens. So standwithwarriors.org. Also, check out sealsbeatbiden.com. So you said that's a documentary that was put on by the Republican, the, the Republic Sentinel? Yeah, that's right. The guys at the Republic Sentinel put that on. That's the first documentary they've done. So the the first, it's a three-part series. Um, and so the first episode is out. And then there'll be two more segments that they're going to release. But it really does do a great job of telling the story uh, really from the protect, pr- perspective of military members, Navy SEALs, a pilot uh, of what happened during the COVID vaccine mandate. And then eventually they get into concepts of what we do moving forward in our military and sort of the bigger picture and, and what we're battling. Awesome. Cool. Well, everyone check that out because I think that's really insightful and uh, it's good to be knowledgeable about the the biggest issues that are facing us in the year 2023, soon to be 2024. So that being said, this actually is going to be the last episode of Forge and Anvil for the year because uh, I believe very next Monday is Christmas, which is absolutely wild. Uh, I was considering doing a Christmas special for you all before Christmas occurred, um, but uh, decided not to not to go that route. So um, my apologies for anyone that was uh, on pins and needles just waiting for that. But uh, uh, either way, we do appreciate you guys listening to us. So um, be sure to uh, be on the lookout for us in the new year. I've already got guests booked out well, well into February and uh, some awesome, awesome guests. And, um, you know, it's always hard. You want to announce it and promote it as much as you can, uh, you know, in advance. But at the same time, the nature of podcasts, people people have bailed on me five minutes till before us, as, as you guys have seen with some of our past episodes. And that's just the nature of people get sick. Uh, we had John Moody was going to come on and uh, he had some sickness in his family, you know, just things like that. So I won't, uh, won't spoil too much in advance, but I'm just going to say that we have some really interesting guests coming up all January and February. So be sure to join us for that. The first Monday of uh, January, January 1st, the first day of the new year, we'll be bringing it in, um, bringing it in hot. So, Really join us for that. We appreciate it. And so, Davis, where can people go to uh, find you and keep up with everything you're doing? Um, where can people go to just uh, uh, support you and all your work? Yeah, the uh, I'm on Twitter, so I'm pretty active on there. So, at Davis Yance on Twitter, that's a great way to just keep up with some of the things we're doing. Obviously, StandWithWarriors.org, as we grow and build out our plans for next year, we'll be announcing more there. My law firm's website is my last name, Yance, Y-O-U-N-T-S, law.com. Of course, you can check out what we're doing there as well. And just um, really prayer is the biggest thing for me. I just appreciate and covet everyone's prayers for wisdom and that we can you know, use the work we're doing with Stand With Warriors with my law firm to, to bring the gospel and just try to seek God's justice in a, in a fallen world. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Davis. It was great having you back on. And uh, we'll definitely have you back on in the future as well to give us updates on the work that you're doing, as well as I'm sure we'll have a story or two, uh, given the state of our world, that we'll undoubtedly want your expertise on. So thanks again. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for the live stream. Be sure to join us Monday nights, 8 p.m. Central, if you want to be a part of the live stream and be in the chats. Uh, we answer quite a few tonight on uh, on YouTube and Rumble, so be sure to join us there. And if you're listening on the podcast platforms, be sure to give us a five-star rating. We really appreciate it. It does help us out. And we will see you all next time.